This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So today is important because hopefully we separate both Professors Winnemute and Barnhorst. They delink the myths from the facts that we understand what the science says. But today is an opportunity. And I hope that what we learn here is written about and it's spread far and wide. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Garen Winnemute. Good afternoon. Um, the work is sometimes risky. There's no money. There's no promise that anybody's going to do anything with the results. There's organized opposition, and you get nasty email. What's not to like? Right? Um, yeah, I'm a lifer. Um, so I'm also basically Amy's setup guy. Uh, we're going to do some science. Um, we're going to move fast. There are going to be quizzes. Um, so stick with me. <clears throat> I'm going to be talking about firearm violence from a, a, a broad sort of population or public health perspective, but I want to start with that very small but very prominent subset of firearm violence that um, I think is responsible for the amount of attention the issue has today, and that's mass shootings. Uh, this is not my photograph. This is a news photograph from Aurora. Let's quantify. Take Columbine and Virginia Tech, and Aurora, and Sandy Hook, and now San Bernardino. 98 people died in those shootings other than the shooters. And without in any way minimizing the tragedy associated with those deaths, it's important to point out that we have nearly that number of deaths every day, on average, from firearm suicide and homicide. It's the quotidian violence, if, you, if I may, um, that doesn't make the news. It's so common that it's not newsworthy anymore. I'm going to focus eventually on that. But let's spend a minute on mass shootings. <clears throat> what makes them different? What makes them newsworthy? A big part of it is, is their rarity. And Lord help us if we ever become used to this because it's become so common. But I think it's also this, and, and this has very important implications for prevention efforts. With ordinary firearm violence, if I may, there's always a story that we can tell ourselves that leaves us out of the narrative, right? It happens to people who aren't like us. It happens um, to people who are in parts of town that we know not to go to. Um, it can somehow be avoided, or so we believe. Mass shootings are different. They don't happen to people who aren't like us. They happen to people just like us. They don't happen in, in places we know not to go to. They happen right in the places we do go. We can't write ourselves out of the narrative. And that's why they are driving public attention, um, I think, as, as strongly as they are. But they are, and I'm going to point this out several times, they're driving us to some extent in the wrong direction. And let me let the follow-up information kind of make that point all by itself. Let's look at some data about mass shootings. Um, these data come from a report prepared by the Congressional Research Service. They are gracious enough to acknowledge that the source of their data is Mother Jones. There is no surveillance system for deaths for mass shootings, as there are not adequate data for many parts of firearm violence. Mother Jones took it upon themselves to compile the data that Congress uses to figure out what to do. 
So we're looking here over the last roughly 15, 16 years, and you can see the counts here. We're looking at numbers of events, numbers of people killed, numbers of people injured. Um, one of the things I'd like to point out to you is how much deaths predominate over injuries. There aren't a whole lot of health problems in the United States where the case fatality rate is as high as it is for these mass shootings. Looking at these graphs, I was, I was reminded of one of the things that really struck me um, after the Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut. Ambulances flooded that schoolyard. It's our kids, et cetera. They left empty. There weren't survivors. Um, something else about mass shootings <clears throat> that we, we don't much pay attention to most of these 25 or so events a year are not the ones, not the public events that we read about. 40% of mass shootings, a digression, I'm using the FBI's definition for mass shootings and there are, there are alternative definitions. 40% are domestic violence events. They're not public events. Another 40% are somehow gang related. Oh, we can write ourselves out of the story again. Um, it's just the remaining 20% that are the public sort of events that keep, keep us up at night, um, sometimes worrying about, are we going to take our kids to the mall? What's our escape route? Are we going to buy a gun? Are we going to carry? Because this could happen in the theater when we're watching the show. Happen in Aurora, why not here? Is the thinking, I think, that happens quite often. If we look just at the public mass shootings, they are actually quite a bit less common. We're only up to 2013 here. I'll update that in just a minute. Um, I should mention I'm using image grabs out of the Congressional Research Service report. Um, but again, no obvious trend in frequency and not a whole lot of them. Define mass shootings differently and you can say we're having one of these a day. The FBI's definition, just to be explicit, is it's a mass shooting if four or more people are killed with a gun other than the shooter. Three deaths and 35 injuries, it's not a mass shooting by the FBI's definition. Um, but in any case, there are some similarities here. Um, people tend to use uh, weapons that accept high-capacity magazines. We don't know if those weapons are more frequently used in mass shootings than they are in other kinds of shootings because we don't have the data. We're not allowed to collect the data. Um, these shootings, in only one case, in all of the shootings here across all these years, was one of these events terminated by an armed civilian. Mostly, they're terminated by the suicide of the shooter. They are occurring more frequently. This has been a subject of debate. I'd like to put the debate to rest. Colleagues um, at uh, Harvard did this work. Mother Jones picked it up. You're looking at a Mother Jones image, and I recognize that you cannot read the names. But back over here is the Stockton Schoolyard Massacre, where I cut my teeth and I think met uh, Daryl for the first time. Um, the Luby's Massacre in Texas, Columbine, Virginia Tech, Gabby Gifford's shooting in Tucson, Aurora, Newtown, and um, what they found was this, this display here is days between shootings. So a big number here means many days between shootings. And something happened in 2011 such that the number of days between shootings went down and it has stayed down. And this analysis has been updated um, through the San Bernardino shooting last December and this conclusion remains accurate. Now, <clears throat> I'm back to the Congressional Research Service report, some aggregate data. Um, we're doing a comparison. I, I'm, I'm a little bit an epidemiologist, just enough to get into trouble. 
Um, uh, but this is uh, a little bit epidemiological, this graph here. Um, it's actually a nice study in how not to present data, which is one of the reasons I have it here. Um, so we're looking across calendar time at the mass public shooting, public shooting, murder victimization rate per 10 million population, okay? It's this, um, I'll call it red, um, line that ends here at one. And here, we're looking at the firearm murder victimization per 100,000 population, and it comes down, it seems to end in sort of the same place. This is a terrible way to display data. It's impossible for us to escape the conclusion that these are about the same. They could not be more different, and this is the point I want to drive home. So first off, this blue line refers not to this axis over here, but that axis over there. So the number isn't one, as it is for the red line. It's actually basically three. You're with me so far. But the big change is right here. Mass public, uh, mass public shooting victimizations is per 10 million. Firearm homicide is per 100,000. So one per 10 million for mass shootings. Firearm homicide, if we just convert it to that same per 10 million denominator, 355. Now, test. I told you. Test. Suicide. Number higher, number lower. How many say it's a higher number? How many say it's a lower number? Lower number, lower number. How many say, I have no idea what you're talking. So, very sophisticated audience, 670. Okay? Our attention as a society, at least as, as reflected in the media, the attention of our policymakers is here. I would argue, not to minimize the tragedy, we need to pay a little bit more attention here. There was a, is the slide not clear? Firearms. It, the question was, are we talking all suicide or just firearms? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a lot of time talking about firearm suicide uh, coming right up. Okay. So let's move on. Let's talk about all of these people. Over 300,000 deaths over the past uh, 10 years for which we have data, just from firearm suicide or homicide. There are only a few hundred unintentional deaths. I'm going to focus on just the intentional deaths. Lots of deaths every individual year. Um, more than two-thirds of all homicides in the United States and right around 50% of um, suicides in the United States um, in 2013, this number was just above 50. In 2014, it was just below 50. And aggregate costs, if we add up not just medical care, but the cost of criminal justice, the cost of uh, lost productivity, and so on, aggregate costs that most people would, would consider to be real money. Now, for the second time, I have a mass um, grave uh, in the background. I do it to remind me to tell you this. This is Arlington. Um, in the last 10 years, we have uh, had this many deaths from firearm, intentional firearm violence. That number exceeds our total combat fatalities from World War II. It exceeds all conflicts except World War II combined. We'll look at it this way. Arlington has been a cemetery since uh, 1865, 1864. Uh, before that, it was Robert E. Lee's um, farm. That's how you punish the losers. You turn their farm into your cemetery. <laughs> We've been burying people at Arlington for 152 years now. 
there are over 400,000 people in Arlington. It's a lot of people. We could fill a parallel Arlington with civilians and just from firearm deaths in about 12 years at current rates. Okay, quiz number two. A race of firearm violence, considering suicide and homicide together, going up or going down? How many say they're going up? Okay, how many say they're going down? Sort of two to one up. Okay, it's actually a trick question. They're really not changing. Now, I am looking at suicide and homicide together. I could give a whole talk on this one slide, but I won't. <clears throat> Epidemiologists like comparisons. That's why I brought Arlington up. That's why I've got motor vehicles in the background. Um, with motor vehicles, we did what America does best. We faced a crisis back here. Rates were going right through the roof. Um, we, we recognized the problem and decided to intervene. We put a bunch of smart people on the case, our top people, um, a bunch of researchers. We said, figure out what, what the nature of the problem is, what the causes are, what we can intervene with, what can we do? We gave them a lot of money. We gave them regulatory authority. Congress stood ready to enact laws based on the research findings. A Little bit of a lag for them to do some work, and they stopped that rise cold. That curve went flat, and then Gas got real expensive. A few of us remember those long lines when gas was all of 75, 75 cents a gallon. It was just off. Um, and with ups and downs, good and bad economy, improvements in, in car design, road design, policy about alcohol, a bad economy right here, down they came. By more than 60% on a per capita basis, the motor vehicle fatality rate, by more than 80% if you account for the number of miles traveled. With firearms, we've done exactly the opposite. Don't get me started. We did not do anything like this, as a result of which, unfortunately, we don't know why this decline happened. Wish we did. We could institutionalize whatever went right. And things, if we consider suicide and homicide together, have not changed in 15 years, as a result of which, for all intents and purposes, these lines intersect. And the, the thinking is, this line is probably the blue line is headed down. You've all read the reports, homicide at least, is probably headed up, and these lines will probably for the first time in history cross. Okay, test question number two, which is more common, you had a hint, which is more common, firearm suicide or homicide? How many people think homicide outnumbers suicide? Smart audience, okay, never mind. <clears throat> Here's what that looks like if we disaggregate the trend. Um, note, this is homicide, this is suicide. Note that even back in the hellish days of the 80s and early 90s, when firearm homicide was, was peaking, firearm suicide was still more common. And um, back, I, I think, even before Daryl and I met, when I was a punk, one of the very first papers I ever did in the mid-1980s looked at this for the 20th century. Boy, has research technology changed in the last 30 years. Um, you had to check out the books and write down the numbers. Um, in any case, throughout the entire 20th century, except for the 1930s, this was also the case. Recently, we're seeing this. There's a decline in homicide, which we think will probably reverse, a steady increase in suicide, such that on balance there's no change. We're going to look at this a little bit more um, in just a second. Now, let's look at homicide first. This is the picture you're familiar with if you've never seen, even if you've never seen it. This is firearm homicide among males uh, by uh, race, ethnicity, and age. It's for 2014, which is the most recent year for which we have data. 
I'm not aware of another problem in medicine and public health for which risk is so concentrated as risk for firearm homicide is concentrated among young African-American men. Among other things, there are important implications for policymaking when policymakers don't look anything like the group at risk. I mentioned that before. Uh, we can revisit that during Q&A um, if you would like. Anyway, you know this picture, even if you've never seen it. This one, you don't know. Same idea. All we're doing is switching from homicide to suicide. The picture is quite different. This time, rates go up for everybody. There are suicides in the 5 to 9 age group, by the way. Um, but go, goes up more for white males than for African-American or Hispanic males. And then it just keeps going up, and then it goes up even faster. This trend, not only is, does the slope increase, the rate of increase is increasing. This is a middle-aged and elderly, the, <clears throat> not just the increase in rates, but the increase in the increase is a middle-aged and older white guy phenomenon. It's my demographic. Um, one of the ways I like to sum this up is, who knew that gun violence was really an old white guy problem? Right? Mr. Policymaker. <laughs> now, one more little baby step here. What I'm going to do, we looked at homicide and suicide separately. I'm going to combine them. Violence, the combination, okay? 80% of gun deaths among African-American men, excuse me, I misspoke that, 90% of firearm deaths among African-American men are homicide. 90% of firearm deaths among white men are suicide. 90 is the same, but in opposite directions. So if I can go back, this red line is basically that red line plus 10%. That blue line is basically this blue line plus 10%. It's just that rates here are so much higher than they are here that the slope of that line has been squished. It's just a visual image. You're all with me, aren't you? Okay. So far, I have been taking the traditional public health approach to this problem. We've been talking about risk, and there's a lot to be said for that approach. Put your money where the risk is. You're most likely to have an impact. People who are at highest risk um, deserve our... Uh, our inputs the most, all of that kind of stuff. I disagree with none of that. But there is a complementary, not contradictory, complementary approach to this kind of problem called the population health approach, which stems from the observation that most adverse health events of whatever particular type can occur among people who are at low risk for those events if the low-risk population is big enough relative to the high-risk population. Most heart attacks, to pick the favorite example, occur among people who do not have lots of risk factors. Not because we've missed their status about risk, but simply because there are so many of them. So it is argued we need a combination of prevention strategies. Some are risk-based and some cover everybody. Okay. So I'm going to make that switch. I'm going to take these deaths, which are expressed here on a population basis, and I'm going to get rid of the denominator. We're going to shift from risk to burden, from death rate to number of deaths. But the events are exactly the same. Risk, burden. Suddenly, 
this curve becomes very much more prominent. Beginning in the mid-30s, most, most deaths from firearm violence among men occur among white men. And you can see this peak here. This peak, if you measure area under peaks, this peak is actually much larger than this one is. Not because they're at higher risk, just because there are so many more of them. These are policy, this is the demographic that policymakers come from. You've seen the prior slides. This is suicide. To come back to the theme of the day, Amy's going to talk about this much more. Um, mental illness has very little to do directly by itself with interpersonal violence. It has a huge role to play in suicide. So my setup for Amy is that mental illness and firearm violence are very, very closely linked, just not in the way people think they are. We'll leave that. Policy related to alcohol. <clears throat> Background checks. California has a policy that requires a background check for essentially every transfer of a firearm. We've had that policy for 20 years. The thinking behind that policy is this. There is agreement. People draw the line in different places. But there is agreement that there are people whose risk for doing badness with a gun is so high that we ought not to allow those people to buy guns. Just that simple. Background checks play this role. You can't enforce such a prohibition on firearm purchase if at the time the purchase is being transacted, you don't know whether the purchaser is a member of that high-risk prohibited group or not. It's just that simple. I do field work at gun shows and have done some number crunching sort of research. It works like this. Nationwide, 40%, we actually have new numbers coming out that will back up data that are now almost 20 years old. 40%, give or take, of all transfers of firearms do not involve a licensed retailer. And in most of the country, that means they don't involve a background check or a waiting period or any record keeping or anything else. It's, I've got a gun, you want to buy it, I've got enough cash, here's a handshake, and there's always a handshake, it's a ritual. Um, and the gun changes hands, and that's it. Now, it's convenient, beats filling out all those forms and stuff, but if I'm a prohibited person, that's how I buy guns. If I go to a gun dealer, I've got to hire somebody to make the purchase for me because the background check will smoke me out. That's called a straw purchase. That's what background checks are for. Be happy that we have them in California. This is why it's an issue that will never go away on the national agenda. Most states don't have that requirement. The 40%, there are two parallel systems of gun commerce in most of the United States. One involves background checks and all of those precautions, one does not. And I think the best analogy I've ever heard is this. It's like you're getting ready to get on an airplane. Hmm? Um, and, or to go through the airport to the airplane. And you have a choice. You can go through security or not. And you get to decide. That's how this works for guns. Okay, so enough about that. Let's just talk about alcohol. Um, so this is something on which we've been doing uh, a fair amount of work just lately. Um, so first off, boy, do we love to drink in this country. Um, uh, on, a, on an average, over an average month, um, half the population admit drinking. Um, a, almost 20% of the population admits to binge drinking in the last month. Um, that's five or more for men, four or more for women. Pay attention next time. Um, and about one in, one in seven or one in eight um, admit to drinking heavily on a chronic basis. That's more than one per day on average across a month for women, more than two per day on average 
um, across the month for men. Again, pay attention to your own behavior. It's common. That was a little bit of a setup. We also have lots of gun owners. There are about 50 million individuals in the United States who report that they own firearms themselves. Not, I have a gun in my home, I personally own a gun. And again, um, I actually just saw this presented in New York on Friday. There are new data coming out, it's 50 million. Um, by the way, the rate of gun ownership in the United States is not changing, it's, it's about 50 million. Um, so, you just do the math about the prevalence of alcohol consumption um, and the prevalence of firearm ownership, and you come up with, notice the range, we'll stick with the low estimates here, that um, 8.9 million um, firearm owners, personal firearm owners, binge drink in an average month, and 2.5 million drink heavily on a chronic basis in an average month. The low estimate is based on the assumption that firearm owners don't drink, um, don't drink any more heavily than does the general population. But they do. They've, in in large-scale research, firearm owners have reported um, a prevalence of binge and chronic heavy drinking that's above the general population rate after adjusting for age, sex, race, and, and um, state of residence. So the high-end estimate, which probably actually is closer to reality, is there's somewhere above 11 million firearm owners binge drinking in an average month at least once, um, and something like three and a half uh, who are sort of drunk all the time. Okay. You've read the rest of the slide. Um, we know from lots of different kinds of, of research, some involve self-report, some obviously involves autopsies, that fairly high percentages of people who commit homicide with a firearm, commit suicide with a firearm, are the victims of a homicide, of homicide with a firearm, are drunk at the time of the event. But you're a savvy audience and you understand that prevalence is not risk. It just could be the 25 to 35% of the population is drunk at any one time. How many people are drunk in the room at the moment? <laughs> so it always gets a laugh. Sometimes it gets a hand or two. So, um, In any case, you've read the rest of the slide. Um, it's, that's obviously not the case. That's why it's a laugh line. Um, and the risk associated with both acute intoxication and a history of heavy consumption varies from anywhere between really high to just downright obscene. Um, enough about that. So. Based on evidence like this, a couple years ago, in 2013, um, the state legislature considered legislation that would, for the first time, have prohibited people from purchasing firearms if they had a provable history of alcohol abuse, provable as reflected by multiple convictions for DUI offenses. DUIs are widely understood to be a marker for broad-based alcohol abuse. They just reflect the times you got caught. Um, and the legislature, bless them, uh, passed that statute. I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. So they, they, enacted, they enacted the law. <clears throat> the governor vetoed it. The governor's veto message was, I'm not persuaded that there's sufficient evidence that people who have been convicted of a crime that does not involve violence and does not involve a firearm should be prohibited from purchasing firearms. And there was no such evidence. The kind of stuff I just showed you on the prior slide had never been compiled on firearm owners. So we're in the evidence business. Um, we have one study almost done um, and another one that we're, um, if I may, up to our ass and alligators with. 
um, that will uh, look at very large numbers of firearm owners and answer the question, after you control for everything else, um, are firearm owners who binge drink, or, or I'm sorry, strike that, firearm owners who are convicted of DUI offenses more likely than others to be con um, charged with serious violent crimes um, in the future. And I am going to stop there and introduce um, Dr. Amy Barnhorst. She is a nationally recognized expert on firearm policy as it relates to mental illness. Thanks for the introduction, Karen, and thanks everybody for coming. I'm going to talk about a few things in this talk. Um, we're going to talk about whether or not people with mental illness are actually contributing significantly to gun violence or overall community violence. We're going to talk about what firearm ownership legislation is targeted at people specifically who have mental illness. And we're going to look at whether or not this is actually working. Is this really an effective way to reduce overall community violence to prohibit people from owning firearms if they have a history of mental illness? Just as a reminder from what we heard from Garen, there is this association between firearm violence and mental illness that comes up every time there's a mass shooting. And people seem to think that that is the big danger from dying of a firearm. Well, this is a graph that shows the big pink pie, shows all firearm homicides victims from 2013. And the little tiny green sliver at the top shows how many of those people were killed in a public mass shooting. So again, not the domestic incidents, not the gang-related violence, but the kind where it happens in malls and schools. It's a very, very small sliver of the overall pie of firearm homicides. And if I were to have a pie of firearm suicides, it would be twice the size of this pie. Nonetheless, this is what people seem to worry about. And every time there is a mass shooting, there is this quick jump to the mental health history and the mental illness that is assumed that the shooter has. We hear about madness, we hear about delusions, we hear about warning signs. And pretty soon the politicians jump in. This is Jeb Bush after the Charleston church shooting saying, America needs to focus on mental health care, not new gun laws. Expert on many things, the Donald jumps in and says, this isn't a gun problem, this is a mental problem. And the New York Daily News sums it up in the unfortunate vernacular of the public by saying, get the violent crazies off our streets. There has been research to show that every time we read a mass shooting article that involves the mention of mental illness or a presumption that the person is mentally ill, that it does increase people's stigma against mentally ill people, their willingness to live near them, and their willingness to work with them. And in fact, this is a somewhat more uh, politically correct way to show what the public thinks. So this is an opinion poll from the Washington Post ABC News. And the question they asked, I just borrowed their graphic here, says, do you think that mass shootings in this country are a reflection of problems identifying and treating people with mental health problems or inadequate gun control laws? So 63% of Americans who responded believed that mass shootings were a failure of the mental health system. And only 23% attributed them to the gun laws that we have. So we're going to look at some of the research out there. Are people with mental illness actually at an increased risk for violence? Well, the answer is not really. But there are, um, there are some good studies to show that people with severe mental illness are much more likely to be victims of violent crime than perpetrators. They're a vulnerable population, and people who are violent but not mentally ill tend to take advantage of them. But there are some certain circumstances where patients with severe mental illness, people with mental illness, are actually at a higher risk of violence than the general population. 
And two of the specific circumstances that have been shown are at the beginning of a psychotic illness. So mostly young adult males who are starting to become delusional, maybe paranoid and psychotic, and who are not yet into treatment, oftentimes they act on their delusions out of likely thinking they're protecting themselves or their loved ones. Um, and also the period surrounding psychiatric hospitalization. Well, this is um, maybe a little bit of a, of a confusing statistic because in every state that I can think of, some of the criteria for psychiatric hospitalization is centered around dangerousness. So you're, you're kind of selecting a population that's already been determined dangerous, but certainly during that surrounding period, there's a little bit of a high risk. Um, if you look at the overall risk of violence being perpetrated by people with mental illness, and we're talking about major mental disorders, so I'm not talking about everybody who's ever been to a psychiatrist or taken an antidepressant from their primary care doctor or maybe went to a counselor when they were having a difficult breakup. Major mental illness here is defined as people who have one of the diagnoses of schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, major depression, those, and also one hospitalization. So that's kind of the marker for how ill folks are. If you meet those criteria, the increased risk that you have above the general population of committing an act of violence is 2.4. So, you know, it's a little more than double. And that probably takes into account some of those high-risk situations we talked about, the beginning of a psychotic illness and the period surrounding hospitalization. Well, that's not insignificant, but let's look at some other risk factors for violence, like, for example, substance abuse. Garen talked a little bit about the strong relationship between alcohol and violence. Um, substance abuse is an independent risk factor for violence, not just alcohol, but specifically stimulant abuse as well. And numerous studies have shown that the association between violence and mental illness that does come out in a lot of data is due to the fact that there's a confounding variable of increased substance abuse among the populations of people who have mental illness. So yes, those populations may have a slightly higher risk of violence, but that's largely due to the subset of that group that's using substances as well. What's the actual risk of violence if you have a substance abuse problem, but you're not mentally ill? So not just alcohol, but other substances as well. It's almost seven times that of the general population. So this is a much bigger risk factor for violence than just having a severe mental illness. Those of us who work in mental health may have seen a few patients who actually have both mental illness and a substance abuse problem. Happens on occasion. Um, and those folks do have a cumulative risk. So if you have both a severe mental illness and a substance abuse problem, you have almost a tenfold risk of perpetrating violence over somebody who just has neither of those risk factors. Well, that's a pretty significant risk, and it seems like people with mental illness do have a slightly increased risk of violence. Not as big as substance abusers, alcohol abusers, but, you know, it's something. How much are they contributing to actual overall community violence. So how much of the violence out there in the community is due to those folks having a slightly elevated risk? It turns out not very much. So this is data and actually a slide that is from a colleague Jeff Swanson who does a lot of research on mental illness and violence and the link between the two. And this is from survey data that he got from about 7,000 people in um, North Carolina and Los Angeles about acts of violence and mental illness. And what he did is he looked at all of the acts of violence out there and the risk factors that contributed to them. So things like poverty, history of trauma, prior history of violence, substance abuse, mental illness. This little orange pie slice here where it says 4%, that is the amount of community violence out there that is attributable solely to mental illness. 
and nothing else, serious mental illness. The rest of this gray pie is violence out there that's attributable to other factors. So all of that violence is due to something else like poverty, like substance abuse, like living in a violent neighborhood, having traumatic experiences. So serious mental illness is not a big contributor to community violence, despite the media association with it and the general public belief that it is. On the other hand, as Garen mentioned, suicide is actually strongly correlated with mental illness. So if you have a major mental disorder, the increased risk for you attempting suicide as compared to the general population is almost seven times higher. And some studies have shown that completed people who complete suicides, 90% of them at the time of their suicide meet criteria for a major mental disorder. So there is a really strong association there, but again, that's not what people worry about. People worry about the mass shootings. Nonetheless, we have a lot of firearm legislation aimed at this population of people with mental illness, even though they may not be our biggest risk factor for both general, the quotidian firearm violence that Garen talked about, and the mass shootings. So we're going to walk through a little bit of that, and then we'll talk about some of the ways in which it has worked and not worked for us as a society. And to understand that legislation, we have to go back and look at a brief history of federal firearm law in the United States. It was hard for me as a Californian to understand the uh, stronghold a lot of our fellow countrymen have on the Second Amendment. But I think if you look back at the Revolutionary War, it kind of helps you understand why it's so important to us as a country. We had, during the, the period of the colonies, we had adopted a lot of the English common law, one of which was the right for private citizens to hold firearms. And when we rose up against the British and fought for our freedom, it was not because we had some huge organized military with the Army and the Navy and the Air Force. It was groups of private citizens getting their muskets out of their woodsheds, banding together in small militias, and rising up against the oppressive British government. And that was such an important thing that people had access to those privately held firearms to band together and fight for their freedom that it became part of our Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment of the Constitution, which reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Times have changed a little bit, as we saw with the most recent militia in Oregon, um, that it's not really an effective way to rise up against our government now. They have a lot more firepower than we did back in the days of the 13 colonies. But nonetheless, the Second Amendment has persisted and has been tested in court and stood up. Um, it was almost 200 years later that we had the first limits put on the right of United States citizens to bear arms. And that was the Gun Control Act of 1968. This was born out of the assassination of John F. Kennedy five years earlier by Lee Harvey Oswald, who had mail-ordered a rifle to his P.O. box. So it was like he essentially Amazon primed a firearm to assassinate a president with no background check, nothing. And people started to think, you know, hey, maybe we should make this a little bit harder for people to get a hold of firearms. So the Gun Control Act is what a lot of the firearm regulations that you all will recognize is where they come from. So it regulates the firearm industry as well as firearm owners. It requires federal licensure of all retailers. So not people selling a gun to their friend or their cousin or out of the trunk of their car at a gun show, but anybody who's going to be a licensed retailer. This is where we get our prohibition on interstate trafficking of firearms, prohibition on ownership by minors, and most importantly for us, prohibition by a number of prohibited persons. These persons who are prohibited from owning firearms include felons, people, and this is the language in the act, unlawful users of or people addicted to a controlled substance, 
it's not exactly spelled out how we're to identify these people. Uh, respondents to domestic violence restraining orders. And then, most importantly for us who work in mental health, anyone who's been, and again, this is their language, not mine, adjudicated as a mental defective or who has been committed to any mental institution. These phrases were clarified. So adjudicated as a mental defective is a determination by a legal authority that somebody has been found incompetent to stand trial, not guilty by reason of insanity, a danger to himself or others, or lacking the capacity to contract or manage their own affairs. So you'll notice that the first two of these require some involvement in the criminal system anyway, or you wouldn't be on trial. And the last one is what we think of here in California as conservatorship or guardianship. They also clarified, uh, not so much in the act itself, but through years of, of court cases and case law, what it means to be committed to a mental institution. So it's not enough that you just get admitted to a hospital for psychiatric reasons on a voluntary hold or on an emergency or observational basis. In fact, um, a lot of states allow you to be admitted to a hospital for up to two or three weeks before you ever go to a hearing. It requires a judicial hearing for you to actually become a prohibited person. So somebody who's going into psychiatric hospitals all the time for a week, two weeks in certain states might never actually reach that threshold of official commitment where they become a prohibited person. So this was all well and good, but there was no recommendation as to how we were to identify nor communicate about who these prohibited persons were before we sold them firearms. We were just, I guess, on the honor system. Um, and new legislation again came out, this time in the wake of a presidential assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley Jr., who was trying to uh, impress Jodie Foster after her role as a teenage prostitute and taxi driver. Again, people start thinking, maybe that guy shouldn't have had a gun. So the, um, during the shooting, Reagan's press secretary, James Brady, was wounded and paralyzed, and out of this became an advocate for better firearm control legislation. And the Brady Act of 1993 was born. The biggest part of this is that it established a way for people to actually check a database to see if people were prohibited from owning firearms. So this is the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, uh, mercifully abbreviated as the NICS database. And the idea was that this is a central repository of information run by the FBI where each state could upload their list of who had been convicted of a felony, who'd been found incompetent to stand trial, who'd been convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence incidents, who had been committed to a mental institution. So then the federally licensed firearm dealers were all going to be required before they sold a potential purchaser a firearm to check the NICS database and see if that name was in there among these records of prohibited persons. And of course, at this point in 1993, the states were like, yeah, we'll, we'll get you those records, no problem. Um, it was a big problem. It was really hard for states to actually figure out how to do this. And even as of 2012, there were 30 states who were not reporting mental health records to the NICS database. Um, there were a lot of reasons about this. The government did a survey and went out and asked place, states, said, what's going on here? One of them was the lack of technology and the lack of infrastructure to get all these records together and get them uploaded to the NICS database. Another was, was an inability to de-aggregate the data. So some state laws prohibit people for different reasons that are slightly, don't, just don't quite match up with the federal prohibition criteria, and we'll see why that's important in a bit. Um, and then the final reason, of course, is HIPAA. You know, this is protected patient information, especially the, the stuff about psychiatric hospitals. 
it's not actually protected under HIPAA, but many of us have had the experience that we worry about HIPAA in all kinds of cases, even when it doesn't actually apply. And maybe the biggest one is that because the federal government cannot compel states to enact federal law and use state resources to do so, all reporting to the NICS database by states is voluntary. So California actually has some stricter firearm uh, ownership criteria than even the federal government. We have a few laws on the books that are more strict than what the federal government would prohibit you for, especially as related to mental illness. So here in California, a person becomes prohibited not just when they're committed at their hearing in a psychiatric hospital, but if they get admitted to the hospital for dangerousness. So even if they're still in that emergency observational time period and they haven't been in front of a judge or hearing officer, they can lose their right to own a firearm if they get admitted. Also, if they're subject to a Tarasoff warning, which is the duty to protect statute if the person has admitted to a therapist or a psychiatrist that they are thinking about committing an act of violence against somebody else and that gets reported to the police, then they also lose their right to own a firearm for five years. And if the person is under court-ordered involuntary or assisted outpatient treatment, they also don't have a right to own a firearm for the duration of the commitment. Okay, so now that we know what the system is and what laws are out there in place preventing people with mental illness from owning firearms, we have to ask the question, does it work? Is it actually reducing societal violence? Is it preventing mass shootings? Are we having an impact here? Well, I'm going to um, take a look at a couple different mass shootings, and there were many, many I could have chosen from, unfortunately, but I picked a few where the shooters had in some way or another kind of skimmed the mental health system. There are very few... Uh, cases where the shooter actually was deep enough into the mental health system that they would have already triggered some prohibitory criteria. And there aren't even that many cases where there's a solid history of mental illness. So I don't want this to represent that all mass shooters have mental illness and contact with the mental health system. I picked these cases specifically to illustrate how this system works or doesn't work for individuals who have had contact with the system. One of the, unfortunately, most famous is uh, Sung Ho Cho, who in 2007 killed 32 people and wounded 17 more in the biggest mass shooting in the U.S. And two years earlier at Virginia Tech, he'd been convicted of stalking two female students. But rather than the pressing legal charges, the judge remanded him to have involuntary outpatient treatment. From the Gun Control Act, adjudicated as a mental defective actually includes somebody who, as a determination by a legal authority is a danger to himself or others, like two women he'd been stalking. Um, but unfortunately, at the time in Virginia, and to give Virginia fair credit, they were one of the states who was best at uploading mental health records at the time. The Virginia statute only reads involuntarily committed or ruled mentally incapacitated, which Cho had not been. He was only ruled dangerous. So Virginia never uploaded these records to the NICS system, and he was able to buy multiple semi-automatic weapons legally and perpetrate the shooting because he was nowhere in the NICS database. In 2011, uh, Jared Lochner, who was 22, he killed six people and he injured 13 others, including Senator Gabrielle Giffords at one of her constituents' meetings in Arizona. And it is likely from the story that Jared Lofner was in the beginning part of a psychotic illness. So maybe in one of those slightly higher risk criteria for people who were mentally ill. He had been recently expelled from the community college where he was attending for some of his bizarre behavior. Um, and the security officers there had actually called his parents and advised them to get any firearms out of the home and away from him. 
And his parents had done that. They'd taken away the shotgun they knew he had. They disabled his car at night so that he wasn't able to drive anywhere and do anything without them monitoring him. But he continued to talk about the government having uh, uh, this plan to fake space flights and the government controlling people through the use of grammar and syntax and printing fake currency. And he had all these bizarre conspiracy theories. He'd never actually quite made it into psychiatric treatment because he'd never reached the threshold where he had to go involuntarily. So he wasn't disqualified from buying a firearm on any psychiatric grounds, even though he was clearly getting to be quite mentally ill. He also had been arrested for drug possession at the time, but he didn't get disqualified because it wasn't a felony. And even though he was an unlawful abuser of a substance, and that potentially could have been a disqualifying criteria, the charges were dropped. So again, he was able to go into a gun shop, pass his background check, and legally buy a handgun just a month before. James Holmes, in 2012, opened fire on a movie theater in Aurora, and he killed uh, 12 people and injured a lot of other people. He didn't have any prior criminal record or anything else that would have prohibited from, uh, him from purchasing a firearm, but he had been seeing a psychiatrist at CU. And he had become kind of increasingly scary to her, saying things about how he had these homicidal thoughts about killing other people. He didn't have any specific target in mind. He never revealed to her that there was any plan. But um, she did document in one of her notes that she had considered putting him on an involuntary hold, but thought that that might just exacerbate his personality structure that was causing him to have these violent thoughts. And instead, she reported him to the security at CU, who were aware of him, but again, nothing had happened that they had any recourse to actually arrest him or commit him or do anything that might have triggered a firearm prohibition. Um, so he was able to buy multiple handguns and rifles and thousands of rounds of ammunition as well. This is Aaron Alexis, who in 2013 opened fire at the Washington, D.C. Navy Yard, and he killed 12 people before being shot by the police. He's another person who skimmed so many different prohibitory criteria but didn't quite make it. Starting with the fact that he had been in the, uh, I think he'd been in the Navy and he had had this kind of problem with his behavior. He'd gotten in trouble a couple of times and he was honorably discharged but for behavioral problems. Had he been dishonorably discharged, he would have met federal criteria to prohibit him from owning firearm, but he was not. He didn't have any mental health history, and he didn't have any criminal history that would have disqualified him. But just prior to the shooting, he had had a couple run-ins with the police because he'd been staying in a hotel in Rhode Island, and he was concerned that people were sending um, microwaves through the walls into his body to deprive him from sleep, and that people were listening with listening devices into his hotel room. He had requested on multiple occasions to be switched to a safer room, and then when that didn't work, he called the police, and they had come over twice and not actually found anybody putting microwaves into his hotel room. Um, but he did actually document in one of his notes before he perpetrated the shooting, he said, an ultra-low-frequency radio attack is what I've been subject to for the last three months, and that is what has driven me to this. He, again, never quite made it far enough into the mental health system to have reached any threshold of being a prohibited person, so he was, again, easily able to pass a background check in Virginia and buy firearms. So those are the stories of a couple of mass shooters who maybe did actually have mental health problems. Again, that's not really representative of the bulk of mass shooters, many of whom are just angry young men with a history of being bullied and a lot of feelings of social isolation. But there are some who, for one reason or another, might have been prohibited through the mental health system. None of those ones were. Well, what about 
firearm legislation targeted at people with mental illness in just preventing general community violence, the, the general quotidian violence that Dr. Winnemute talked about earlier. Um, again, more data from our friend Jeff Swanson. He looked at some of the research. That he did some research in Connecticut. And Connecticut was a good place to compare what happens when you report people to the NICS database and with what happens when you don't. So Connecticut started reporting people to the database in 2007. And what he did was look at different populations of people. What was the rate of violence before they were reported to the database when they could legally buy a firearm? And then did that change after they were reported to the database when they no longer could legally buy a firearm? He found that if you were disqualified from buying a firearm, your risk of violent crime, if the disqualification was only for mental health reasons, it went down by 53%. So that means the people whose disqualifications that were reported to the database in 2007 were only for things related to mental health, their rate of violent crime was cut in half by prohibiting them from owning firearms. Interestingly, a lot of people had histories of both mental health and criminal disqualifying uh, behavior. And those people's risk went down, but not nearly as much. It only went down by 17%. Not shown on this slide is the fact that the people who were disqualified only on the basis of criminal behavior, their risk of violence after being reported to the NIC system and disallowed to legally purchase firearms, it actually went up. So there may be something about criminalizing people and perpetuating their criminal behavior. But nonetheless, hey, this is great, right? 53% reduction in, fi in firearm violence or violence in general by people who have mental illness. Maybe reporting to the next database really is making a huge difference. Well, wait, not so fast. We have to go back and think about this pie. This is the pie of all community <coughs> violence. And if you look back at this, we're not talking about reducing violence by 53% in general. We're talking about reducing violence by 53% in people who only have mental health histories to disqualify them. This is a different study that we're going back to, but that loosely translates to these people here in the orange slice of the pie who only have serious mental illness as a risk factor committing, for committing violence. So we're not talking about reducing all of this violence by 53%. We're talking about reducing this tiny little orange slice by 53% and reducing overall community violence by about 2%. There might be some better ways to prevent community violence than targeting all this legislation at people with mental illness. And Garen talked a little bit about targeting legislation at people with serious alcohol problems who are responsible for a very disproportionate number of firearm deaths. Uh, Garen has also done research on violent misdemeanors. I love it when I present his research when he's right here. Um, Anyone with a prior history of violence is known to be at a strongly elevated risk for future violence, much more so than people who are mentally ill. And in California, we prohibit violent misdemeanors from owning firearms, even though it's not a felony, so it wouldn't meet federal prohibition criteria. Um, and so this law was enacted in 1990, and sort of like the Connecticut study, Garen looked at what happened to people who were able to buy firearms before 1990, but then were all, that same population of violent misdemeanors who now were prohibited after 1990, what was the difference in, fire, in firearm violence or in violence in general? And the prohibition from owning a firearm reduced violent crime in this group by 30%. So we don't know how much this group was responsible for big, the big pie societal violence, but it is very likely a much larger slice of that pie than the people with severe mental illness. And targeting high-risk people like people with a prior history of violence people with alcohol problems, people who are substance abusers, 
may very well be a much more effective route to go than having all this different legislation targeted at people with mental illness who are only contributing a small bit to that violence pie. A couple other pieces of legislation I'll just mention really quick um, that also Garen has done a lot of research on. One is the California Armed Prohibited Persons Program. So yes, you can get somebody on a list where they can no longer legally purchase a firearm because they're in the database, but what about that whole shed full of guns that they already have? Well, in most places, it just stays with them. Um, but in California, we have a program called the Armed Prohibited Persons Program where the Department of Justice can cross-check their list of prohibited persons with their list of people who legally own firearms. Because remember, you can't legally buy a firearm even at a private party sale without registering. And if somebody's on both of those lists, then they, the firearm is now illegally owned. And then they actually will send people out to their house to knock on the door and say, hand over your guns. This is like on my list of top five jobs I would never want to have. Um, but as of 2014, it was estimated that almost 18,000 people in California owned firearms illegally, and that came out to almost 35,000 guns. So at least two guns per person. Um, and in 2014, the Armed Prohibited Persons Program seized 3,200 firearms that year. And then the last thing I'll talk about real quick is something that passed uh, in 2014 and just went into effect this year in 2016, the Firearm Restraining Order, also known as the Gun Violence Restraining Order, depending on what website you look on. This was passed on the heels of the Isla Vista shooting where Elliot Roger had um, been showing increasingly concerning behavior, posting weird stuff on websites, talking about killing people, talking about taking revenge, having a day of retribution enough that he had sparked some concern among people who knew him and also among his parents. His mom had called the, um, the sheriff's department and requested a welfare check, and the sheriff's department actually went to his house because she was so concerned about him to check in on him. He did not appear to be mentally ill. He said he was not suicidal. He denied having any plans to hurt anybody else, and he hadn't committed any kind of crime. He didn't have any history that would have prohibited from buying a firearm, and at the time, even though his mom was pretty concerned, the sheriffs had no cause to go in and search his apartment or do anything to intervene. And it was a few weeks later that he stabbed a few people, shot a bunch of people, and then run, ran down some more in his car before shooting himself. So what the firearm restraining order allows is family members or police who are concerned about somebody's potential for future violence in the, in the immediate future to actually petition to have their guns removed. And it's based on the domestic violence restraining order, which is a similar process where you can have a temporary emergency order granted, but there needs to be an official hearing where the person against whom it's granted gets a chance to show up and argue their point. And that has to happen within 21 days. And at that time, it's possible for the judge to rule that there's a permanent order in place that lasts one year, and then they can go remove the guns from that person's possession. Okay, so take home points. Um, in order to balance individual rights with community violence risk, firearm prohibitions have to be both sensitive and specific. Sensitive meaning they're going to pick up the people who are at risk for violence, but specific meaning we can't just prohibit everybody in a blanket fashion. We have to actually pick out the ones who are at higher risk. And targeting people with mental illness may not be the most effective prevention strategy. We know there are other groups out there who are much higher risk, who have much less legislation targeted at them. Also, none of this matters at all if we don't have an effective centralized way to communicate about who shouldn't have guns, and people are actually reporting their information to the NICS database. And ideally, 
all these prohibitory criteria aside and all the best communications aside, there should be some tools in place to prevent acute violence in the short term before it happens, regardless of whether it's due to mental illness or criminal acts or whatever, just when you know violence is brewing that somebody can intervene. Okay, and that's the end. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.